Amen. All right. Um, well, First Corinthians chapter one. Um, actually, before I, I read the passage, I thought this time I'll I'll give you some background before we begin. But I entitled the message "Division: The Problem and the Remedy." You know, and especially as we look around our our society today, and we look at the news, it's in our face. You know, you have Republicans and Democrats. <gasps> yeah, I said it. Um, they sit on the hill and it seems like they can't make a decision. As a matter of fact, it seems like uh, they, they thrive in that environment. They love to hear uh, the people bark. They like to hear uh, the problems, but no one has a solution. And then you have groups, you know, like uh, the Black Lives Matter, LGBT, uh, the feminist movement, white supremacists, Latinos. Everyone and everybody is screaming and they, and they do it on social media. And, uh, and it's not only just here. It's not just uh, local. It's a worldwide problem. You have France, England, Germany. I mean, uh, it's a worldwide problem. We're, we're divided. And uh, it seems like there's no solution in sight. But unfortunately, the, the one place it shouldn't occur, and it does occur, is in the church. And Paul is going to address those issues as he looks at the Corinthian church. And he does a masterful job of addressing the problems that cause divisions within the church, specifically uh, this Corinthian church, not this church, right? And so uh, for you note takers, uh, we're going to go through three areas. We're going to look at God's calling in chapter one here in verses 26 through 31. We're going to look at God's message in chapter two, verses one through five. And then we're going to look at God's provision in verses 6 through 16. Now, again, before I read, I, I thought it would, uh, just to save us some time, um, you know, Paul has left uh, uh, Jerusalem in Acts 15. He's uh, going to Syria and Cilicia. And from there, he goes to Derby and Lystra. And that's where he meets Timothy. And then from there, they head out to Bithynia. And at Bithynia, the Lord had instructed him to leave. He says, you know what? You're not going to preach here. And so he leaves. He departs. And as I look at Paul, I, I, you know, he's all over the Roman world. And the thing I appreciate about Paul is that he doesn't flex his muscle. He say, you know, Lord, you know, I'm sure I'm, we, can, we can do a lot of work here. He doesn't question the Lord. He's sensitive how the Lord is going to use him. And so he just yields to the Spirit. And then he continues, and he's moving. He's going. He's driving. And then he, he, he goes to Troas. And in, while in Troas, the Lord begins to speak to him in a night vision, and he sees a man from Macedonia pleading for help. And, the, and when Paul wakes up, he deduces, you know what? This is the Lord, man. The Lord wants me to go to Macedonia. So he gets up and he takes off from Macedonia and he, he ends up at Philippi. And while at Philippi, he meets Lydia. And we're told from the scripture, she is a worshiper of God. And not only is she a worshiper of God, but she uh, sells, she's a seller of purple, which in that day was a prized textile. And so, and you can see as you look at Paul's life, as he progresses all over the Roman world, God is, is, is dealing with this man. He is not done with Paul. And he's not done with you. While in Philippi, there's a young girl who's possessed by a demon. She's got a spirit of divination within her. And he delivers her. Hey, great. Uh, this girl's been delivered. Well, let's hold up a second. Her masters are not very happy about that. You just cut off their revenue stream. So what do they do? They go to the magistrates of the city. They begin to complain. These guys are turning the world upside down. The magistrates take uh, Paul and Silas and they have them beaten with rods. And we're, talk and we're not just talking about they're just beaten lightly. They're, their skins are stripped off their back and they're bludgeoned. And then we're told that Paul is cast into the inner prison and have, they have their feet Locked in stocks. And, and for some reason, the way our brains work, we just get a picture and that's it. No, they are severely beaten. They're battered. They're bruised. Imagine your feet locked in stocks. How do you support yourself? You got to balance. You can't just get up and go to the bathroom and, and go to a john. You can't do that. They're in a very difficult position. Now, you and I may sit there and go, I can't believe. Here, I'm trying to do things for the Lord, and here I'm locked up. I, and they broke the law. I mean, 
because you didn't beat a Roman citizen. That's a different story altogether. And what do they end up doing? They begin worshiping the Lord. What was that like for the jailer and all the inmates in there? To, to know, especially this jailer, to know this gang was unjustly beaten. Well, we know that soon after that, there's a great earthquake. The doors fling open and the jailer assumes, man, these guys are gone. They split. Unfortunately for them, a jailer is responsible for their prisoners. And if their prisoners escape, there's, on, there's only one option. That means that life of that prisoner is required of that jailer. Jailer pulls out his sword. Paul screams of the night. Put that thing away. And what intrigues me is the next thing the jailer does. He jumps into that cell, trembling, the scripture says. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Never discount where the Lord has taken you. Sometimes we think, here I am in a prison in a pretty bad position, been beaten and this jailer of all people. We don't, know, we don't know if anybody's ministered to this jailer. We don't know if maybe a family member has been ministered. We don't know if he has another Christian influence. We don't know all those things. But here comes Paul and he begins to just worship the Lord. And he hears that and he's keen on that. And in that moment, he realizes my life would be gone. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He, re- he tells him, you call him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he accepts the Lord. Takes Paul and Silas, takes him home has them cleaned up. And while he's at home, what happens? The family accepts the Lord. That same evening, the whole family is baptized. Well, the story continues. Paul, leaving Philippi fresh with wounds, ends up in Thessalonica. Well, Paul's MO is, you know what? I go to, I go to every synagogue in every city I visit. And there he is. He's reasoning with the Jews. He's talking about Jesus Christ as the Messiah died on the cross. That didn't go well. They began to threaten him. Ultimately, they beat him. He ends up leaving. He ends up heading for Berea. And from Berea, he ends up, while in Berea, the the Jews discover he is there in Berea. They hightail it after him. They're like, they're, they're hot on his tail. Ends up, Says, you know what, guys? We need to leave. They, they arrest Jason and some brethren. And they're like, you know what? They left that night. Him and Silas packed up that night. And they take off. Paul takes off for Athens. Now, while in Athens, Paul arrives and he sees this great pantheon of idolatry. All these Greek gods, Roman gods. And he's there waiting for, um, for Silas and Timothy. And it tells us that when he arrives in Athens, he is grieved to his spirit. Because on every street, in every business, in every home, there is an idol. People are worshiping false gods. And this grieved Paul to the core. Because he understood clearly that these people were lost. They didn't have a life of God. They had a life after idolatry. But they were in darkness. And he was grieved. And then it tells us, that he eventually had this power encounter on, on Mars Hill. And he identifies there's, a, there's this, this slogan on, on this idol that says, to the unknown God. This thing that was attributed to this God that they didn't know. And, and Paul keenly says, hey, that unknown God, let me make him known to you. And he begins to reason with them. And they're going back and forth, man. The swords are going out. They're just going back and forth, arguing and, and, and reasoning. And, and, and they were listening. They were, they were listening until the point where he says, and then the resurrection of the dead. That's it. They lost him. Because to the Greek mind, these are our heroes. The Greek gods, these are our heroes. How can I even imagine that there's a God who would humble himself this way? That he would be placed on a cross and punished. What kind of God is that? They worship power. And that, couldn't, that didn't fly well with them. And so the scripture says they began to deride him and mock him. And when you look at Athens, you almost get the sense that he was not successful at all. It says only a few left with him. Well, here's Paul, gets on a boat and heads to Corinth. And as, as he lands in Corinth, which is about 50 miles away from Athens, he lands, as it were, and as Dean Farrar puts it, Corinth was the bridge of Greece. It was an incredibly wealthy city. Uh, when Rome was out conquering the known uh, world, 
Corinth was one of the few cities that actually resisted Rome. But Rome's military might was too much. So uh, in 146 B.C., Lucius Mimaeus, the Roman general, conquered and pillaged Corinth. He decimated Corinth. They said that out of all the treasuries that they took from Corinth to Rome, it was up to half the wealth of Rome. And we're talking a small parcel of land. Well, a century later, Julius Caesar knew the significance of Corinth, both location and potential. He invested heavily into Corinth. And in 46 B.C., Corinth was rebuilt out of the ashes. Trading routes from all all the traffic from Athens, the north of Greece to Sparta, had to pass through Corinth. Why? Because it bottlenecked there. It bottlenecked in this four-mile-wide isthmus. All the northern and southern traffic of Greece had to pass through Corinth, as well as the traffic that went east to west. Corinth had two harbors on each side. I'm sorry, a harbor on each side of the isthmus, um, which made it attractive for ships to bring their cargo. You had Lycaon on the, on the west and Centrium, uh, Centria on the east. Sailing 200 miles south around Cape Malaya proved to be difficult. For the most, it, was, it was considered the most dangerous cape in the Mediterranean. You know, in Spanish we say malo for bad, right? It was this Cape Malaya. It had such a bad reputation that the Greeks had a saying for those who considered this voyage. They said, uh, let him who sails around Malaya forget his home. That's like us saying, you want to go to L.A.? Uh, You want to avoid the 110 freeway, right? Corinth also had developed a system uh, for smaller ships and cargo to move across the isthmus. Now, if you could imagine, there would be hundreds of ships in the harbor. Ships bringing merchandise from all over the world. And what they would do is, you, as you made a port, they would take your ship, pluck it out of the water, and, and move it across rollers to the other side of the isthmus. So if a large ship came by, they, they unload the cargo and do the same. They move all the cargo across the isthmus. Now, Caesar Nero uh, tried to carve out a canal there, uh, but it never came to fruition because he died shortly thereafter. The marketplaces sold objects from all over, the, uh, all over the world. Items like Arabian balsam, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Cilician's goat hair, Lyconian wool, and Phrygian slaves. Add to the mix the Corinthians celebrating the Isthmian Games, which was only second to the Olympic Games. So add to that mix. You had athletes from all over the world. And it's no wonder Corinth had become one of the greatest commercial centers in the ancient world. But with all its commerce, with all all its wealth, Corinth had become a byword for debauchery and every form of filth. For example, nestled high above uh, uh, Corinth, which is called the Acrocorinthian, stood the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. The temple accommodated over a thousand devout followers, prostitutes, and they would all descend upon the city at night. It was reported that as sailors and captains, and after their long voyages, would make, make harbor there or make port, that they would climb the hills hungry for sex. Again, you had athletes coming from all over the civilized world, merchants, sailors, freedmen, Slaves, ex-slaves, philosophers, and the who's who coming through Corinth. Acts 18 tells us Achilles and Priscilla uh, there in Corinth partner up with Paul because they were both tent makers. Now, Paul didn't stay for a few days. He didn't stay for a few weeks. He stayed for a year and a half. He eventually leaves Corinth, goes to Ephesus, and two years later, pens this letter. And and what was that like for Paul, as I imagine? What was that like for him? Remembering and recalling the faces of people, the kids, the adults, the friends he had made. What was that like for him knowing as he 
wrote this letter understanding the spirit behind Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth eventually became influenced by the culture around her to her shame. She had a reputation for being carnal. They were suing one another in the public courts. There was sexual immorality taking place in the church. There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. They had a reputation for showing up at the communion table drunk. And interestingly to me, Paul has heard about the divisions from Chloe's household. And he didn't start the letter addressing idolatry. He didn't start the letter addressing sexual immorality or the abusing of the gifts. He starts addressing the cancerous problem of church division. In our modern day vernacular, he's talking about church cliques. Isn't that interesting? Didn't talk about all those issues. He says, the first issue I need to address in the onset of this letter is division. So, Let's look at God's calling here in verse 26 of chapter 1. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now again, as I stated earlier, Paul is addressing church division. There are those who are saying, you know what? Hey, I'm of a Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, which, you know, which is Peter. We don't know if Peter even visited Corinth. Maybe these are folks that uh, uh, they met uh, uh, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And they say, hey, we're, we're with this guy. We're with Cephas. And there were those who were saying they were of Christ. They were even arguing over baptisms. And Paul is making his case here. And he, he, he wants to allude to two categories, two categories of, of, of people. He says you have the upper class in verse 26 here and the lower class. So when he says here, for you see your calling, brethren, that's the word klesis. It's an invitation. When I invite people to my house, I, I call them, email them. I, gave them a, I give them a formal invitation. And that's what that word means here. He says, for you know your invitation, brethren, your calling, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And notice here it says, are called. Well, you see those, those words are in italics? They're not there. If you think about it, actually it gives a different sense to the passage. Because when he says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise are according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You go to the next verse, you exclude those words, but God has chosen the foolish things. So in other words, he calls them. It's not like he doesn't call them. He doesn't say they're not called, nor does he say... Uh, Not any are called. He says, not many are called. That's a big difference. And Paul ought to know he was part of the many. Why? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, which if you are a Pharisee, you're wealthy. You are at the upper tier of Jewish society. He was Hellenized to the culture, we're told. He is highly educated. Matter of fact, they said they couldn't pull him from the books. He studied under uh, Gamaliel. If anybody understood upper class, this man did. And he says again, this passage, not many wise according to the flesh means wise according to the standards of this world. You know, we talk about people who are wise in the world, you know, hucksters, these people who are streetwise. And that's basically what he's saying. Not many wise. They're, They're wise to the standards and the rudiments of this world. And notice he says, not many mighty, that's the word, the Greek word, danitao, which means powerful, which can imply the ruling class. And then he says, not many noble, it's the Greek word, eugenes, and it literally means well-born or high-born. He's speaking about nobility, being born in a noble family. Now, if you remember, you know, think about this, if you remember, uh, Jesus shared a parable in Luke chapter 14, verse 16. How this master of a great feast sent his servant out. He says, hey, you know what? Uh, We invited these people out. The the feast is ready. Go call them. We're ready to go. Everything's ready to go. Go call our guests. And what was some of the, what was the response of some of those people that he had invited? And we're talking about someone who's supposed to be great. Well, one of them says, you know, I just bought some land and I got to take care of it. You have to tend to it. Okay, and the servant gets to the next one. And he says, well, you know, I just bought some oxen and I got to try these babies out. 
And then he goes to the next one. And he says, well, you know, I just got married. And I think you understand. I can't make it. And he returns. And the master of the feast became angry. And he instructed his servant to go out to the highways and byways and bring in the poor, bring in the maimed, bring in the lame, bring in the, uh, the blind. He says, until my house is full. Does that sound like Jesus isn't inviting? The issue is how important is he to them? Or how important are they to Christ? Apparently, Christ isn't that important. When's the last time a senator, a celebrity, or a, prof- a professor ate at your house? I mean, again, I'm not saying that some aren't saved. It's just that there's more of us than there are of them. Let's look at the lower class. He, he, he says, But God, in verse 27, has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Again, who is he talking about here? In the context, he's talking about merchants, tradesmen, the poor, and slaves. Slaves. Well, let's look at that a little bit. Slaves in the Roman world were just living tools. That's all they were. They were considered objects. They weren't even considered people. They would discard slaves like one would throw, a, throw away a tool in the trash. There was no such thing as marriage. Even their children belonged to the masters. If a Roman wanted to amuse himself, he could torture or even kill a slave. And yet the vast majority of people that made up the church were the poor and the slave. Could you imagine if here you are, a Roman, you've been hearing about this, and maybe, just maybe, this is kind of making sense, and, and you walk into a fellowship, and there's your slave at the pulpit teaching. That's hard for them to wrap their minds around. Look, what Paul is saying here contextually is, in their wisdom, they clamor over the orators, the philosophers, and their Greek heroes. Yet God has chosen the infamous over the famous. He's chosen the lowest of the low. The world says, hey, you know what? You have no meaning. There's nothing of value in your life. And yet God has given you life and he's given you life eternal. He has chosen what the world considers as refuse. And that refuse is whom he sent his son to die for and redeem. He, he died a criminal's death on your behalf. And now next he tells him, The purpose here in verse 29, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that word for boasting literally means to brag. That no one would brag. That no one could ever brag when they get to heaven based on who they are or their merit. Isn't that comforting? I mean, don't we have this innate ability to measure ourselves amongst ourselves? Don't we do that? Gosh. I look better than he does. But then you look at someone who's better, like, okay, well, put your head down. And I hate to say, but women are really good at this. Because as soon as they walk into a room, it's like, well, look at us. let's look at her makeup, let's look at her hair, look at her dress. And we just do that, don't we? And then we, we look for ways to say we're better than they are. That's, that's our, our carnal nature. We do that. But what a great hope for the less fortunate. Could you imagine hearing that as a slave? Someone who's uneducated, someone who can't read, someone that all they've known all their life is just to do the beck and call of their master, to hear there's a God in heaven who actually loves me, that lives in me, as opposed to the the Greek gods. What What a contrast. That the entire human race is equal in the eyes of God, and there's not one person who meets God's standard except one, and that's Christ. Let me tell you something. When we get to heaven, the scripture tells us we're going to get on our faces and we're going to cast our crowns to the, uh, before the Lamb of God, right? And let me tell you something else. I began to think about this. When we get to heaven, we're going to look at his, at his hands and his feet. I doubt any of us are going to be bragging. We're going to be crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
died for us. Paul says if we're going to boast, then we should boast in the one who made it possible. Notice here in verse 30, he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? Because Why should we boast? Because this is God's purpose. This is his plan. And his plan is we are in his son. We're in him. Now, we may be in Pasadena and we may be in this fallen world, but ultimately we are in, in him. And because we're in Him, there is a benefit the world cannot possess. The world cannot possess the blessing that we have. It says there's wisdom from God, meaning we understand how we're supposed to live, how we ought to live. There's righteousness. And what he's referring to is a judicial act, and it points to the law. All of us in this sanctuary have broken God's law, and therefore we stand before Him guilty. What does Romans chapter 3 tell us? That we're all under sin. There's no unrighteous. No. Maybe some? No. Not one. Not one person is going to stand before God and say, hey, hey, I got it. I came here. I'm superhuman. No, we're all guilty before God. All under sin. All under sin. Jesus being perfect fulfilled the law perfectly. And that righteousness that he possesses is imputed to us, rather given to us. So when the father sees us, he sees us standing in his righteousness, not mine. Because there is none there to offer. He sees us as he sees the son. Then he says, linked to that righteousness is sanctification. This speaks of a moral change. Now that we've made uh, righteous, I'm sorry, now that we've made righteous, we've been made righteous, we need to forego the way we used to live. Our, we need to live differently. My life needs to be set apart for God. I need to have godly thinking. I'm set apart. I remember when I got saved, I'm telling you, I had friends for 18, 20 years. And I thought, man, these are rock solid friends. I get saved. A week later, I literally lost every single friend. Every single one. I'm like, wow. All because I said I accept the Lord of my life. And that said a lot to me. And I understood. I'm, li- I'm going to live a different life now. I'm, I'm going to live a set-apart life. Furthermore, linked to that sanctification is redemption. Redemption speaks of the future. Our future glory. And then he says here in verse 30, 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I, amen. That's reason enough why we should boast in the Lord. He, he, he took uh, low lives like ourselves and made us like his dear son. Can anybody think of a better plan? Can anybody improve on that plan? I can't think of anything better. He, he's, he's made me righteous. He's justified me. He's sanctified me. And we're looking for eternal glory. I can't think of anything better. Again, Think, think, think low. Think about the slave. Think about the poor. What great hope this this uh, was for them and for us. And yet this is God's plan. The God of the universe reaches down to the rejects of the world and he makes us his own. He says, you know, you Corinthians, you responded to the invitation. You responded to the calling that not many in the upper echelon did. Yet you've begun to embrace their worldly way of thinking. And let me tell you, it's unwise. He said back in verse 21 in the same chapter that the world, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. If their wisdom was so good, why didn't it lead them to God? He's saying that worldly wisdom doesn't lead you to God. God's wisdom, unlike the world's wisdom, reveals his eternal plan for saving man. And yet, for some people in the church, for some folks, they have a hard time with this. They see someone come to the church, disheveled, drunk, they're a druggie, you know, they look frazzled, they come in and, and, you know, as shepherds, we kind of keep an eye on them. But when they come in and they hear the message, they respond and we go, 
I hear some folks go, they're not really. Come on, really? That? They're saved? Really? Well, guess what? They respond to the same message you did. Why are you so different? And why is it so different? And in time, we see God just clean that person up. But yet, as a church, as people, our inclination is to look at someone like that and go, yeah, right. Sure, they're saved. Listen, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. God has chosen the weak things of the world. God has chosen the base things of the world. God has chosen the, the despised things of the world. And guess what? That doesn't bother me one iota. I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? He's chosen the offscouring of the world, the cesspool. And he sent his son to die for those in that cesspool. Now, if you, you can't understand that type of forgiveness or God's grace, you, you have bigger issues. You don't understand grace. He moves from God's calling to God's message. Notice here in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, again, there is no chapter break. I mean, here's Paul. He's penning a letter. I mean, I don't know about you, but do you ever write a letter to someone and you say, well, here, chapter three, chapter four? No, it's a letter. And so Paul is, is writing in this fashion. And so he's carrying his thought over. Um, but keep in mind, as we look at this passage, that Paul is using himself as an object lesson. And it says here in, in verse one, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Notice here, Paul recounts to them how in verse 3, how he was with them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And that word weakness, it's a word that speaks about physical weakness. Now, Prevalent in the Roman Empire was Malta fever, malaria, and epilepsy. And we're not sure what type of, of, uh, of condition he was going through. But you look at Paul. This guy was pretty beat up. I mean, this guy got hammered wherever he went. I mean, uh, early church history through some uninspired writings described Paul as someone who was short, bald, his eyebrows connected. He had a hooked nose and he was bow-legged. Sorry, Paul. Um, and when you think about when he was at Lystra which is, and Derby, which is Galatia, how they, they stoned him and left him for dead. Now, think about that. They take him and this mob begins to throw stones at him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure they're not small stones. And I've seen people stoned. They don't just throw a couple of stones. They continue throwing stones make with the intent to make sure this man is dead. And they leave a stack of stones. So I'm sure that this crowd was convinced that Paul was dead. That's how hard they hit this man. And then we're told that when he regained consciousness, <laughs> woke up and just walked away. And I'm sure as he, he's here in Corinth, you know, he's still experiencing the pain from the stones, the bludgeoning on his back. I mean, this guy is pretty beat up. And on top of that, a physical, maybe disease? We don't know. I mean, you want to know what Paul has gone through? Go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You will see a list of all the things that he has gone through and what he has tasted. So the type of physical weakness he was experiencing, we're not told. Then he says that he was with them in fear, and he substantiates that fear with trembling. Now, evidently, there was something going on in Corinth that caused Paul to be afraid. So much so that God had to speak to him in the night vision in Acts chapter 18. I'll, I'll read that. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. In Acts 18, it gives us a, really a cross-reference of, of Paul in Corinth. And he says in verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Luke recounts for us how the Lord spoke to Paul 
while in Corinth in the night vision. And in verse 9, he tells Paul, hey, do not be afraid. Because apparently Paul was struggling with fear. And God says, but speak and do not keep silent. And, and again, the language is, don't even think about being quiet, but speak. Why? Why? Well, verse 10, because I am with you. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to hurt you because I have many people in that city. God's concern for that city. This corrupted city full of all forms of debauchery. Prostitutes, homosexuals, drunkards, idolaters, sexual moral. And yet God in all that, out of all that, he says, I have many people in that city. You know, I began to think about that, about Paul's fear and, you know, try to put myself in his place. You know, one thing is when you get pretty beat up and they, they continue and they threaten, it's not like I have a fresh body. You're, you're dealing with, with some issues. And I think he was struggling with that. The fact that, you know what? Hey, you know what, Paul? Yeah, we stoned you. We beat you with rods. But guess what? We're going to come at you next time. Something more extreme. So I'm sure that those threats were flying. And Paul's thinking, man, I'm, I'm physically sick and I'm physically beat. And here he is in fear. And understandably so. He says, Paul, don't stop preaching. There are many in Corinth. I'm with you. No one's going to touch you. No one's going to attack you. What a great assurance. You know, if I could live anywhere, it would be, never mind, I'm not going to tell you. Um, I think uh, there would be sand involved, though. Um, but, but why don't I move? Um, I'll tell you why. God hasn't called me to move. Um, this is where all the action is. You know, the Lord has called us to go fishing. In some of those remote areas, there ain't that many fish. Believe me, we went to Lake Arrowhead this past weekend, and you know what? Uh, when we were on vacation, and we caught zero. Do you think I want to live in Arrowhead? Many, many fish there. And, and I know God is more than capable of sending someone in those areas. Um, you know, and I hear how people uh, have a desire to move out of the state, you know, because, you know, people are a problem. Uh, they want to get away from the hustle and bustle. But ask yourself, why people are a problem? Why are they a problem? Because many of them are unsaved. We have college campuses, high school campuses, packed to the gills with lost kids. We have gyms, restaurants, businesses filled with lost people. And you want to get away from that? <laughs> if the Lord is telling you to move, Move. I'm not, I'm not against that. But you better make sure it's the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to forfeit all the plans that God has for you. So you can go fishing. You can go knit while someone's lost. It's not a guilt trip. That's just the truth, folks. It's just the truth. Notice again here in verse 1, he, he says, And I, brother, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech. Or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. He says, I didn't approach you like the Greek philosophers, the Greek speakers of the day. Or, or, you know, I didn't wow you that way like they wow you. He says, I came to you declaring to you. And notice the, uh, the next con- uh, part of this verse, the construction. And, and the construction say the testimony of God or the testimony about God. Well, I don't think it's the testimony about God for obvious reasons. I don't think if Paul was out there saying, you know, I have a testimony about God, the Jews would be would be hounding him. He wouldn't be persecuted. And. And I think verse two says it all because he was there. He didn't want to know anything among them except Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's the object. So this is God's testimony about his son, the Messiah. This is God's testimony. You know, 1 John 5, 9 says, If we receive the witness of men, which we do, the witness of God is greater. 
For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. It's his testimony. Two verses later, he says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Again, God's testimony. He puts his son on full display. This is God's testimony. And, and Paul says he's determined not to know anything else among them because this is God's testimony. Now, um, some of you know I have six kids. Um, my wife and I still kind of look at each other, bewildered. Uh, what was wrong with you? <laughs> no, it's, it's been great. Uh, it's, it's convicting. It, constantly praying for our kids. They're all different. You know, and I just reminded of, uh, you know, when our kids were growing up, I remember Marcus, you know, our oldest, about two or three years old, uh, on a Saturday morning, uh, I wake up to a knocking. I get up and, okay, it's like six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. And here's our neighbor uh, from across the street, Art. Hey, Art, how you doing? He goes, this belong to you? And, and here's Marcus, you know, he's holding his hand. You know, he got up and went adventuring, went across the street and was kind of wandering around the neighborhood. And then and then you have um, Nicholas, our, kind of our stoic, you know, he he uh, it was Hallelujah night in uh, like a day or two afterwards. We put all the candy on top of the fridge, but we figured out that, you know what, they're going up and climbing the fridge and taking the candy. So we moved it. Well, what he didn't know was, well, we see him running down the hallway and his mouth and teeth were all green. What he didn't realize is I had put rat poison on top of the fridge. Yeah. Um, Ryan uh, was an infant. Uh, my wife was at a friend's house. He's laying down for a nap. Um, my wife is in the kitchen. They're talking, and something stirred within her. She just, something bothered her. So she went to the room, and, and here's this large pillow over Ryan's face, and he was suffocating and uh, couldn't breathe. Call the paramedics. They had to give him oxygen. So if you wonder why he is the way he is, then you know why. Uh, uh, Lorenzo, just a, a few weeks old. I just came on staff. Um, uh, again, just brand new, man. Just out of the oven. Uh, was feeling sick. Had, had a cold. Um, and uh, my wife calls me Sunday morning. Honey, something's wrong. Something's not right. Something is not right. And then, and then from there, it was pandemonium. Uh, he turned purple and went limp in her hands. And what we didn't know was that uh, he had asthma. So he was breathing, but he wasn't capturing oxygen. So he was in the IR for, uh, or, uh, um, for a week. And uh, he's doing fine, by the way. I don't know if you noticed, but these were all boys. Um, well, how about the girls? Well, here's my point. One night I had a dream. And it was, in reality, it was more than a dream. It was a nightmare. Uh, it was so vivid that you ever have a, a, such a vivid nightmare that you don't wake up? You can't wake up? I remember I was so into this dream that when I woke up, I was glad it was a dream. I was relieved. But I tell you, you, you are just overwhelmed with emotion because it was a nightmare. Well, what was this dream about? Um, well, the dream was that we're in a car, we're driving down the highway, um, car careens into a body of water, get my kids out and I'm frantically just getting them out. The car's filling with water, filling with water. And one of my daughters who I won't mention is strapped into the car and I'm trying to pull her. I can't get to her. I can't get to her. I'm doing everything in my ability to do it and I can't do it. And I'm hearing daddy, daddy, save me, daddy, daddy, save me. And I'm doing everything I can and I can't do it. I can't do I'm everything in my power. I mean, I am hurting myself trying to save her and I cannot do it. And the last memory I have was her reaching out with her arms and her eyes closed. And she passed away. And I wake up to this. And you come out of that and you talk to the father. Because you know he's sovereign, don't you? You know he's in control. If anyone makes sense of this, he does. And you just talk to God. Lord, thank you. It was a nightmare. Are these things to come? You start asking these questions, you know. 
Fortunately, it was a, a dream where she was just a little girl. Now she's, she's more of a grown-up. But you understand he's sovereign. He's in control. And then I take, it took me to the garden. Thinking about the Father. Thinking about the Son. He's praying to the Father. Father, if this cup... He's asking if this cup... If there's another way. I would not take... Lord, is there another way? He says, there's no answer. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there he is in the garden, struggling, wrestling with this, starting to sweat, and he sweats blood. And then he's arrested, and he's taken to Anna's house. Then he's taken to Caiaphas' house, and, and then he's being interrogated, and they beat him. And from there, they take him to the praetorium to be judged by Pilate. And by the way, if you want to know more about that particular story, we're going to be going through that for the man um, this Tuesday. But there he is in, in Pilate's court. And Pilate sends him away to be scourged. And, and that's when the real beating began. And the Jews knew it. They didn't have the power of death, so they figured the Romans will do it for them. They put a bag over his head. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And then Isaiah gives us an interesting commentary. He says he was beaten beyond recognition. He's unrecognizable. And you know, again, here's my daughter. She's drowning and I'm doing everything in my power to save her. And I can't. I can't do it. I don't have the ability to do it. And here's the Father in heaven who is more than capable. He can just pulverize every soldier on that hill. And rectify the situation. And he doesn't. He holds himself back. Then they take Jesus. And they stretch him out over a stump. And they scourge him with a cat of nine tails. And that cat of nine tails. Had shards of glass. Metal and, and animal teeth. And they would strike the victims back. Down to the bone. Down to the organs. Such a beating they'd give. They plucked his beard. He forced him to carry his own cross. And the father looks on. What was that like for the father? As he saw his son nailed to the cross. It says in 1 Peter that Jesus bore our sins on that cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, in that singular moment of time, incurred all the sins of the world. In that one moment, present and future. What you and I need to understand is that there was more that was going on that we know. The father is watching the son suffer through this whole ordeal. And he reserves him. He holds himself back through the whole ordeal. He saw that his son became sin for us. He became that which he wasn't. He took the punishment deserving of an alcoholic, of a murderer, of a liar, of a cheater, of a thief, of a pedophile. And in those final hours on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And that means for the first time in his life, he has lost that connection with the Father. Why? Because our sin caused that. Again, what was the answer from heaven? Nothing. Could you imagine your child nailed to a cross, crying out, help me, make this stop. The pain's too much. I'm dying. Mom, Dad, get me off. What would you do? And the father refuses. Because of you. The scripture says that God the Father was in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19. Reconciling the world to himself. This world filled of imperfect people. God was reconciling himself to the world here. And notice here again in verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
a crucified Messiah. This was God's testimony. And then he gives us the purpose of the message here in verse 4 and 5. He says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do Do you believe in the atoning work of Christ on the cross? Do you think we need a gospel message, you know, gospel 2.0? Do you think we need to improve this message? That maybe this message is just antiquated. It's, you know, 2,000 years old. Let's, let's make it relevant for the culture. Do you think that we need to set up coffee houses and turn down the lights and, and create a different ambiance to make people feel comfortable as they come in? Do you think we need to change that message? Doubtful. Doubtful here. Do you believe that God's testimony is sufficient to reach the lost? Do you know that there are churches? I've seen this. Churches where a pastor will get up, begin telling a story, and never open the Bible. They never even attack the Scripture. They don't even read the Scripture. They never talk about God's judgment. They never talk about hell. They never talk about the soon return of Jesus Christ. How can you not? Paul in Thessalonica was there three Sabbaths, and he talked about uh, the rapture of the church to new believers. And yet here we are in the modern age, and we don't even talk about the soon return of Jesus Christ. People need hope. They need to understand Christ is returning. You know, back when Paul reasoned with the philosophers in Athens, Again, they began to mock him the moment they heard about the resurrection. Hmm. Now, Paul could have easily done two things. He could have said, you know what? I'm getting beat over this message. Maybe I need to change it. Maybe I need to omit the cross. Maybe I need to omit the blood. Maybe I need to omit the fact that he resurrected. Maybe I need to change that message. Because, you know, I'm just tired of getting beat up. But if I believe... This message has its origins from heaven. Who am I to change that message? And so Paul goes out and and that's what he does. He doesn't change the message. He says, this is God's message. This is God's testimony. And my responsibility is put it out there and let them respond. That is God's department, not mine. My, My responsibility is to make sure I don't exclude anything from the message because this is his testimony. It's God's responsibility to add power to it. Again, listen, if you you had come to Christ in the simple message of the cross and the power of God transforms your life, no one can ever, ever take that away from you. Because you know. You know down deep in your heart. When you're born again, you know. There's no one that can convince you otherwise. Let's look at God's provision here. Verses 6 through 16. We'll try to plow through this as quickly as possible. It says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Uh, Again, Paul is not saying he's anti-wisdom, but he says he speaks uh, to those who are mature. In some translations, the word is perfect. Okay, But what he's talking about, that word means to full physical development. You know, the idea is you have a baby and you have an adult. Well, I'm not going to talk to a baby because that baby is not going to understand. I'm going to talk to the one that's fully developed. And he's talking about someone who is spiritually mature, who's come to a place through discerning the Scripture and reading the Scripture that they've grown in the Lord. He goes, that's who we speak to. But and he makes a point to that in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, I couldn't talk to you because you're carnal. You're, you're, you're still babes. You haven't progressed. You haven't moved on. And so he's making a distinction here between between Christians. Notice he says, we speak wisdom about those who can receive it. It's not the wisdom of this age, but we speak the wisdom of God. And he says in verse seven, we 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 speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, mysterion. The hidden wisdom 
which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Uh, again, that, that word, whenever you see that in the Bible, uh, as, and I like what one commentator, the way he put it, he says, this is, this is something that, that is revealed to the initiated. It's like a club. If, if someone's in a club, they all understand the handshake, right? Or the hand sign. Everyone understands because they're part of that community. They're part of that group. It's, it's to the initiated. And he says, this message is for the believer. That's the initiated. So when we talk about spiritual things, the spiritually mature person could understand that. The world doesn't understand that. It's foreign to them because they walk in darkness. They're not able to receive it. And notice here he says, which God ordained from eternity past for our glory. Speaking about the future. He says, before time began, God had this plan of redemption, of justification, and sanctification. All those things prepared for your glory. For you. You know, Romans 16.25, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept since the world began. Ephesians 1.4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before time began. Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, meaning you and I. God has kept this all secret till now for our benefit, for our glory, so that we're refined as we walk with the Lord. It's for our benefit. This is his wisdom, again, for our benefit. Then he says here in verses 8 and 9, which none of the rulers of this age knew. If they had known, what? They would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. None of the rulers of this age. Interesting. It's the, uh, the word here, revealed, is the word apocalypto. That means here's this thing that's covered. You know, you go to a car show, you see this cover. We don't know what the car looks like, but we know there's a car there. The revealing happens. That's what we're talking about here. It's been revealed. It's been revealed to who? To us. You know, um, here in, in verse 11, actually, let me, me go on and continue here. It says in verse 11, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Interesting verse, but yet a troubling verse. Um, because, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, I ask folks, you know, who's the worst person you've ever met? And I'm, I'm asking who they met. They'll come up with, oh, Stalin, Hitler. I'm like, I know you've never met Stalin. I know you've never met Hitler. But that's, in their mind, they're thinking that these are the worst people in society. Well, I, I tell people, you know, the worst person that I ever met in my life is me. It's me. Why? Because I know what I think. And that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the spirit of the man. There's, no one knows the spirit of the man but the spirit of the man. And then he makes, he makes a, the comparison. He goes, likewise with the spirit of God. No one knows the things of God none other than the spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God, the counsels of God. He knows everything about God. And that's the Spirit that indwells the believer. What a benefit. What a benefit. In verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He's talking about the things that we receive that we would experience. Experience those things. You've been walking with the Lord for any length of time. You begin to taste to see how good God is. He has changed your life. And oftentimes we have that struggle, right? We want to we want to kind of we kind of drawn to the world. We want to just kind of, you know, let's take a little siesta here. We want to kind of we titillate ourselves. We want to just enjoy some of the things the world has. But God has given us some things that we've benefited from. I don't know of anybody who's a believer that has not benefited from walking with the Lord. Not one person. Even the person that's in the bush. Even the person who's out there witnessing to, to terrorists. They've seen that God is good. 
says, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit continually teaches. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He continually teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Uh, the things uh, Paul says literally weren't things that he learned that he's dispensing weren't learned scholastically. It wasn't like he went to a university and this is the stuff he's learned in the university and he's passing it on to you. He said, I went to the university of God. I got my BA. He said, I'm born again. So the things I'm giving you were from that school. The things that God has given me, that's what I'm dispensing to you. That's what I'm giving you. I'm not giving you all that worldly stuff because look where it got me. It didn't get me anywhere. He understood that. Then note, he says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And the word comparing is better translated jointly fit together, to join. So as the Spirit of God is, is pouring these things out, that we're just putting them together. We're, putting them together. we're building. We're becoming. We're, we're just, the Lord is just putting these things together so I can build in one sense, so I grow in the Lord. You know, um, again, when I got saved, man, that was a clean slate. I'm talking about my brain. You know, because uh, I, I was totally ignorant to the to the things of the kingdom of God. You know, I had I had no idea what it was like to be unequally yoked. I'm like, what the heck does that mean? That's a new one. I've never heard that before. You know, or, or when you talk about uh, the rapture or the tribulation period, all these things that, that you learn, you're just going, wow, these are all new things. And God breathes life into those things. And then your life, be, again, you begin to change how you see things because... You understand these things now. And these are things that have been freely given to us for our benefit. You know, and, and sometimes being in the church, there's a problem with that. So how so? Well, we become so familiar with the, the Christianese, you know, and, and now what we used to, you know, have the zeal for, it's kind of lost its luster. You know, that's like working in and out, right? You know, you ask a person, you know, who works in and out, Hey, where do you like to eat? Uh, let's go to Kentucky. Uh, let's go get some pizza. Let's go to Blazes. Don't you want to go to In-N-Out? No, no, I don't want to go to In-N-Out. Well, there's a difference for someone who works at In-N-Out and someone who eats at In-N-Out. And what happens is when it comes to the things of God, we have to guard our hearts because we can easily lose sight of the things that God has given us. The things that we used to value, we go, ah, you know, what? I'd rather watch a football game. They're not as important. And lastly, here he says, but the natural man does not, Sukikos, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Notice he makes a comparison here. The natural man. You know, back in the garden, God created Adam, didn't he? He, he created him, body, soul, and spirit. Okay? And God gave him one command. Don't eat the forbidden fruit. Well, Adam's wife gave him the fruit. No offense, ladies. The same. Uh, but the command was for Adam not to eat the forbidden fruit. And at that point, he didn't die physically. He did later on at a future date. You know, 900 years later, he dies. But the one thing that died immediately was his spirit. His conscience was still alive. Okay? But his spirit died. So, as you look forward to the future, when you look at the natural man, that component is gone. You see, man has all five senses, doesn't he? Sight, hearing, taste, touch, all those things. And those are all God-given. Nothing wrong with that. You know, so don't, don't you know, approach me later on that we're down on, on people. We're not. For God so loved the world, right? He, he, he loves the sinner. But in all that, all that, all that man has, the, the capacity to build, to create, the one thing he is missing is that spiritual component. The other side of the coin. So the, the natural man can, cannot receive the things of the Spirit. He cannot. It is impossible. You can take the most intelligent man and this will not make sense unless he is spiritually alive. And that's the whole enchilada, folks. 
And Paul says here at the end of, of the chapter, he says, but you, brethren, all this division that you guys go through, all this stuff that you're a Paul, you're a Cephas, a Apollos. He says, you guys are all divided. He says, we have the spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ. We have this message and we're divided. We should be united rather than divided because we have God and he's living in us. We have a hope. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus name and Lord, we just thank you for. Just this passage, Lord, maybe things that we have never seen before. Maybe you have spoken to us today and maybe you're out there today and, and these things are in a weird way making sense. Maybe you've never heard the Bible this way before, but innately God has been speaking to you. He's probably tugging on your heart and you have a, an opportunity to embrace his testimony that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead for you. And if you want to receive him right now, all you have to do is just accept him in your heart and just say this prayer, Father. I come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Make me your child. And help me to walk after you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.